Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3 R. So we've got some great guests coming on the line a little bit later. But amazingly, I actually have some of my colleagues in the studio. It's freaking me out a little bit. Good morning, Dr. Crystal. Good to see you. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's so great to be back in the 3 R studios. I know. Well, I've been here every week, so I haven't missed anything, but I've missed you guys. But you haven't been here in a whole year. It must feel a bit weird. Oh, but it's there's no place like home. You just, you know, I love being in the studio and it's fantastic. To be back. Yeah. Good morning, Dr. Ewan. Good morning. It's been a while, pal. It has been a long <laughs> while. It is good to be back, though. Long time between drinks. <laughs> and uh, we also have uh, one of our sort of new recruits, our, our correspondent from the US, Gracie, is on the line from Texas. Good morning, Gracie. Yes. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. I should say good afternoon. Have you thawed out yet? Yes, I have. We have finally gotten some power back over here in Texas. Um, not everyone has been so fortunate, but uh, the snow is melting. And uh, we are getting more more power, more water. Yeah. So everything's looking up. Yeah, geez, that uh, global warming. It's weird, huh? That's why we call it climate yep. change these days because <laughs> all sorts yeah. of weird weather patterns <laughs> are going on. It's, uh, yeah, look, it's been a really serious problem over there for you guys. So glad to hear that things are um, improving a bit and hopefully everyone will have their power back on soon and you can start restocking your fridge. No doubt. Yes, starting today. Ah, yes. Very good, very good. <laughs> well, folks, we're going to start you off with some uh, news in just a moment. But before we do that, this week I ran a little competition for PhD students asking them to put forward some audio um, communicating the importance and value of vaccinations. And the winner of that competition, which I'm going to play in a moment, these little 60-second grabs, was from the University of Edinburgh. Her name is Kiriaki Niafitu, and she's at the Institute of Immunology and Infection Research at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. And believe it or not, sent it all the way over from there. And this is the piece of um, audio that she delivered for us, which I thought was really impressive. And I'm going to play it for you now to encourage everyone to get vaccinated as soon as the vaccines are available. The only way out of the COVID-19 pandemic is through vaccination. Vaccines are a wondrous creation. They are designed to trigger our immune system to produce antibodies and specialized cells which can attack the invading virus fast and efficiently. The COVID-19 vaccines are designed to generate immunity against the coronavirus. This means that if you do get infected, the need for hospitalization is greatly reduced and the risk of dying is minimized. Once you're vaccinated, you're still required to wear your face mask and maintain social distancing until the majority of the population receives the vaccine. Let's eliminate the virus. Get your vaccine when you're offered one. And remember, the only way out of the COVID-19 pandemic is through vaccination. There we go, folks. Uh, one of our PhD students from the UK. Kind of cool. I'm very happy to have, have played that for people. Now, we're going to jump into some news. Dr. Crystal, do you want to go first? Do you remember what to do? I mean, we've been doing this online, so I'm sure you do. <laughs> it's just nice to be Hang on, let me turn on your microphone. That'll help. There we oh, go. Oh, my God. Oh, you're you on mute. Did you have me on mute? I, for the first time, I was not in charge of my own mute button. <laughs> There's more than one button to push all of a sudden. I didn't know what to do. Well, Dr. Shane, this week, I have been considering a very um, important science question. How much fish poo is in the ocean? Oh, uh, yep. 
um, because uh, this is quite an important question because fish poo is made of carbon and the ocean is one of the biggest carbon sinks in the world, capturing carbon from the atmosphere and sequestering it deep at the bottom of the sea. And fish poo, it turns out, is actually a really important part of this. So this is a study that came out of Rutgers University in the US that estimated that there's that fish poo actually contributes 1.65 billion tonnes of carbon that's sequestered in the ocean, which is probably about 16% of the entire ocean carbon sink. So fish poo, um, you know, it, it's poo, it gets pooed out, but then it sinks. And so you're imagining these, these sort of um, little fish pellets going all mm. the way to the bottom of the ocean. You know, they're full of um, organic carbon from the food that the fish eat, but also, you know, some maybe if they eat some seashells or eat some kind of calcium carbonate, it could also so be inorganic carbon, and it sort of sinks to the bottom of the ocean. I've actually um, found uh, lots of uh, fish poo in um, ocean traps that are like four kilometres deep, so it actually does get down. Um, and so really, it kind of, this paper's created a new global model for the contribution of um of fish to this carbon sink. And it's probably, they estimate it's probably as much as zooplankton. Wow. And we know quite a lot about, you know, the contribution of zooplankton to um, ocean carbon sinks, but we don't know very much about fish poo. So it's opened up this whole new area of research because it's like, well, how fast does the fish poo sink? What's the fish poo made of? Does the shape of the fish poo pellet make a difference to how it's disseminated through the ocean depths? So, you know, and I think it's also raised a bigger question about how we manage fish stocks mm, yeah. because, you know, we know that fish stocks are under pressure and that if we are more committed to protecting marine environments, we could actually be preserving that carbon capture mechanism that's so important to the, the Earth's carbon balance. Yeah, it's made me wonder now if you go down to some of these areas where they farm fish in the fenced off areas, whether or not there's like little pyramids of fish poo <laughs> in those areas of the earth, like <laughs> where you go down there in 20 years and find there is literally a mountain made up of fish poo because we've been farming fish in those those enclosures for so long. Yeah, interesting stuff. It's, it's so much. It's such a huge amount. It's a massive amount. Yeah. Thanks, fish poo. Oh, boy. Thanks, fish poo. Crap matters. It really does. <laughs> and there was a, this a, is the crap this, that matters. This story that um, it reminded me, there was a similar story a few years ago about whales and they estimated the importance of whale poop. And it turns out that whale poo is really, really important because it's a fertiliser, right? And yeah. it changes the whole, um, basically, the system. And because, of course, you know, up until recently, we've been obliterating whales from the oceans, um, they, they actually calculated. And it was it was massive. I can't remember the numbers, but like it was with fish, it was a huge underestimate about the importance of how, you know, whale poop is pretty damn yeah. important. Yeah. So it's interesting stuff. We yeah. cover it. We've always covered a lot of poo stories <laughs> on this show. <laughs> Usually it's Chris KP, but hey, everyone can get involved. With, with two young children, poo's a big topic of conversation in yeah, my house. It's never, <laughs> never boring. Never goes away. Dr. Ewan, what have you got for us? Um, I want to talk about a really fascinating study that came out in science this week, um, and it's about the reversal of the magnetic field. Um, and I'm sure many listeners know that there's kind of this ongoing debate, if you like, um, about um, extinctions and particularly megafaunal extinctions. Mm. So, you know, one camp says it's climate, another camp says it's humans, another camp says it's probably a bit of both and probably is a bit of both, who knows. But anyway, this this study is really fascinating. So what they essentially did was they looked at a time period around 40,000 years ago, which again, a lot of people know around 40, 50,000 years ago, there was a lot of extinctions that occurred of megafauna. So I'm talking, you know, really large animals. So as an example, in Australia, there was an animal called Diprotodon, which is a wombat roughly the size of a Volkswagen, okay? Big wombat. Mm. So all those animals pretty much just disappeared around that sort of time period. And 
And they use cowrie trees uh, from New Zealand, which is a native pine in New Zealand, which um, had been preserved in these um, bogs. And they sectioned them. And then they looked at carbon-14 in the sections of those of those trees, and there are four of them. So it's essentially like going back in time. So with, without, a, obviously, a TARDIS, we can't go back and work out what actually happened. But these tree rings allow us to do that. And they measured carbon-14, and they showed that there'd been this big reversal in the magnetic um, field. Now, you might think, well, why does that matter? Well, when Earth has a, a reversal in the magnetic field, what that actually does is allows um, cosmic rays to come through the atmosphere, which can lead to quite big changes on Earth. Earth. And um, they measured this and they modelled this. And when that happens, we know that um, atmospheric hydrogen and nitric oxide go up mm. um, and that can change photosynthesis. It can also change, mm. um, uh, of course, cooling essentially of the planet. And so they correlated this then with extinctions of large animals as well as other changes that occurred, including actually changes with humans. Mm. Um, and they looked at sediment, they looked at pollen, and there's quite an interesting kind of, I guess, correlation between this reversal of the magnetic field um, and all these extinctions and other big changes that occurred on Earth. So I just think it's fascinating mm. to be able to basically get you know four sections of tree from a swamp in New Zealand and then work out or at least investigate these really big questions that still challenge science and really really controversial questions so yeah. and that yeah. one that one around magnetic fields is fascinating it because is. you you can't look at it in one location no because yep. it's not a bar magnet that someone's yep. just going to flip yeah it will there'll probably be many poles yep. during that period and all sorts of weird magnetic field structures so there might be some parts on the earth that are still protected completely yep. from yep. Um, any sort of radiation from the sun but there'll be other parts for where there is no protection whatsoever and you know one of the reasons why we struggle to send humans to mars mm. is because the radiation they'll experience yep. in, in that, exactly. that trip of nine months yeah it will be catastrophic to them yep. and they have to be shielded and yep. you can imagine the same thing happening to yep. all life on earth yeah would yeah, be they, really problematic. Yeah, they talked about how much the ozone would be depleted during yeah. that, that time period. So, yeah. 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 And the, one of the reasons that Mars has no atmosphere is that uh, it has been ripped off by solar wind because yep. there's not a strong magnetic field to protect yeah. it. So, yep. great segue, Dr. I Ewan. thought you would like that. <laughs> Speaking of Mars, Speaking did, of did Mars, anything happen this week? Did anything week? happen oh this week? Oh, my God. I don't you know, know. Friday morning, I tell you, I was sitting there, I was about to give a lecture at about 9.30, and I'm like, land this sucker. We've got to do this quick because I need to be somewhere else. But, you know, NASA successfully landed the second, I just call them car-sized rovers, um, in this most spectacular location. So if you were looking, if, if Earth all dried up and went crappy, um, which, you know, probably is a couple of decades away, um, <laughs> where would you look for, for life? And one of the best places to look would be in a dried up lake. Mm. And they have landed this sucker right in the middle of Jezero Crater, which is essentially, it's just outside of a delta. So think of, you know, you've got the Nile River, there's the Nile Delta, mm. and you want to land just outside that where everything flowed yep. and settled. Best possible place to to look, and and while you're there, why not why not strap on a, a little helicopter? So there's a, there is a helicopter on yeah. the underside which is going to be dropped off once it's all powered up. They're charging it up at the moment of the um, Perseverance rover, and they're going to try flying a helicopter on Mars. Now that may be a big deal, but the atmosphere is so thin. This is a really difficult challenge. So one of the things that I thought was amazing with the helicopter. Um, part of this was that all they have to do to meet 90% of their mission objectives is to just get it to take off and that's it. 
<laughs> just, even if it's just a few centimetres? Just take off. That's take it. Take off. That's they don't the, even that's need to really mean. land. It's like, <laughs> because, you know, they've got it there yeah. um, because there's a whole lot of issues. You know, it's like 90, minus 70 degrees Celsius or so overnight. This thing's got to survive that temperature. It's got to be able to charge itself up using its solar panels, work on its own without the robust, you know, within a few days and, or, you know, a month or so, I think it is. And and then it's got to be able to fly in this yeah. this really thin atmosphere, which would be amazing in terms of redistribution of things around the planet if we ever go there mm. and so forth. So some really exciting stuff. But yeah. um, hopefully there's been a, a weird scenario. People may have noticed that not many um, images have come back so far, Right. My 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 thinking here is because like why aren't they sending back all these images? I think it's because they're working primarily on the video of the descent, mm-hmm. and so there is video they have captured of the actual descent all the way down, mm. and they're going to release that soon. Now, if you think of a single image, it takes a lot of time to get an image back from Mars. Mm. Instead of that, you're going after minutes, yeah. seven minutes of video. It's going to take ages, and I think that's where they're putting their efforts. Yeah. That's my guess. I hope so because that's be awesome. So. <laughs> it would be like trying to download something in 1989. Yeah, yeah with with dial-up. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, exactly. I'm having flashbacks because I did that <laughs> yeah, a I, lot. Yeah. I'm a bit older than you guys. I, no, but, uh, I was there. Yeah, yeah you were there. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't your thesis. Um, <laughs> that was a, hang on, that was my HSC results. Because the, the things that we saw on the day, they were computer animations, basically. Yes, that's right. So CGI. I was tr- trying to explain yeah. to my son that these these were like the the, yeah. the cartoon version of what was happening exactly. it wasn't the real video yeah. so if we could get real video that would be sensational yeah except except of course for one of the amazing photos that was shot you'll see online folks if you want to go and have a look at it it's from the mars reconnaissance orbiter and it's taken a photograph of the thing of the rover craft dropping down and deploying its parachute I mean, I was talking to Cam from Edith this morning and I said, this is like you poking your phone out of a 747 <laughs> and taking a photograph of my car or a 10 cent piece as I flip it. Like, it is incredibly sophisticated um, piece of science to do mm-hmm. that. And it's just amazing. I mean, it's, it's just amazing that they can do that. It's really mm-hmm. impressive. So, anyway, there we go. I'm excited. It's, uh, it's just the it's beginning. Great stuff. It's just the beginning yeah. of all the yeah. exciting things we're going to hear. And, and the real hope for me, you know, what could save 2021? Someone telling me conclusively that there has once been life on Mars. That yeah. for me might pull it out of the fire a little. Maybe yeah. not completely, but partially. You know, it's a pretty shit year. So anyway, <laughs> um, Gracie's like, yeah, it's been freezing. Uh, but we put the rover on Mars, Gracie. You Americans, I tell you what, you get some things right. Yeah, only some things. Yeah. Triple <laughs> <laughs> R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. We uh all in the studio today, Dr. You and Dr. Crystal and myself, and uh, virtually from Texas, we have got Gracie Finko. She is uh, one of our correspondents from the US, actually our only correspondent from the US, what am I talking about, and is going to tell us, tell us all about the use of venom. So, Gracie, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Shane. So, you know, I'd heard before that snake venom is used for certain medications, um, but that was about the extent of my knowledge. So in my head, I kind of pictured someone, you know, kind of trekking around through the Amazon rainforest, you know, catching snakes, maybe, and, you know, putting their venom in little vials to bring back for research. That's kind of the image that I had in my head. Um, and some people may do this, but that's actually not really how it happens. Um, so let me ask you, people that extract venom from snakes, what do you think their job title is? Oh, uh, I remember this. Venom milker. Milkers. Are they milkers? Yes, you're correct. They're called (laughs) snake milkers, which I find so hilarious, but they're called snake milkers. Um, So it's a type of herpetologist that works with snakes um, and other reptiles. 
um, to extract venom. And a lot of these snake milkers actually work in research labs that house the snakes, which makes a lot more sense than what I was thinking in my head. Um, people don't actually have to go out and trek around <laughs> for the snakes. They are already there in the lab. They're bred in the lab. Um, and a lot of these labs also work on things like conservation in addition to research, which is really cool. Um, and there are about 3,000 species of snakes and only around 450 are venomous to humans. Um, and actually snake venom is just saliva with toxins. So for most snakes, their salivary glands are actually in the back of their head. And there's a little muscle behind their salivary glands that actually squeezes um, that saliva out of that gland. And the venom travels down to its fangs, which have hollow little tubes all the way down through the fang. Um, and that's actually how the venom travels through the snake out its fangs. Um, and the specific makeup of the venom is actually different among species of snakes. So some toxins harm the nervous system and can cause paralysis. Some focus mo are mostly on the circulatory system and can cause uh, you know, blood clotting, um, influence blood pressure. Um, and then some can actually harm your muscles by causing tissue death or influencing your muscle contractions. And properties of these same proteins can actually treat a wide variety of conditions like high blood pressure, heart attacks, and stroke in humans. Um, and another thing that I found really interesting was that actually Gila monster venom helps treat type 2 diabetes. And then also fire ant venom can be extracted to help treat psoriasis to kind of help improve skin health. Mm, it's um, so it's that was kinda, really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of weird, like this idea that these things that are designed to kill us by biology um, are somehow then converted right. into something that we can use. I mean, especially something that, as you said, like the, the muscle death one to me is interesting. You know, mm. how you can take something that causes cell death in muscles and then utilize it is fascinating. Right, right, correct. It's super fascinating. And actually, one thing that I found out through researching is this is that the snake venom itself is not directly used in medicines. So that was kind of the impression that I had before that actually the snake venom is kind of converted into this new medication. But actually, the snake venom is broken down into different components, which allows the scientists to kind of test the useful components to treat the illness in question. And then they actually create a synthetic version of the compound, meaning it's not natural to mimic what they find in that venom to a lesser degree. So it's actually not the snake venom itself that's being used in that medication, it's being replicated through kind of this not natural compound. Mm. And that's actually what's going into the medication. Um, so then they test that compound and kind of create a version um, for the drug for humans after it's been tested. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it makes sense to me why they don't use the venom because the other thing that always amazes me about snake venom is how incredibly complex it is. So it's not just one chemical. It's a huge cocktail of multiple compounds, like incredibly incredibly high number of compounds so which again just i guess amazes me in an evolutionary sense that you know australia obviously has a really high number of highly venomous snakes and the number of compounds in those venoms is quite mind-boggling and yeah it, they're very effective they, they mm. kill their prey very quickly but yeah it makes sense that when you, to use that in a medicinal context you really have to i guess extract all those compounds right and work out which one is doing what so yeah the science behind that is quite fascinating so yeah Right, definitely. And there are also um, a really wide variety of different compounds, even within different mm. species of snakes. So even you have that variety even within that snake species, but also across snake species, exactly. which makes it even more complicated, right? Mm. Exactly. Um, and this process is used for a really wide variety of different medications. Um, but there's one class of medications that's probably the most widespread. So if you know anybody taking medications to lower their blood pressure, they're probably taking something um, called a class of drugs, basically called ACE inhibitors. It's an acronym, ACE. 
Um, it stands for angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, and it's one of the best-selling drugs of all time um, to lower to lower uh, sorry blood pressure. Um, so these actually contain the synthetic compounds that are modified from those snake toxins. Mm. And and like um, how do we get? Uh, I suppose the question for me is. How do we get from the point of like these many very detailed compounds to pulling one of them out and working out that it's, you know, oh, this might deal with blood pressure. You know, like there must be a, a very long process of discovery there, similar to what we find in antibiotics. Right, definitely. It's from what I saw, it definitely takes a lot of time and money and effort um, from labs that usually have to collaborate with each other, um, even across institutions. Um, and a lot of um and this can also be said even for antidotes to certain snake venoms. There are some that have been deemed even not even worthy to come up with an antidote for just because the incidence of um, humans getting bitten by those particular snakes is so rare that the actual time and effort is, is deemed not worth um, investing the time basically to investigate those compounds. Wow. That's a, so that's it all kind of <laughs> comes back to money, doesn't it? But we, yeah. have come, we have come up with a lot of high throughput screening mechanisms. So when you can mm. actually take um, different, uh, like you can kind of break the snake venom down into different sort of um, s- sort of sample sizes and then you can sort of run it through these big, what they call libraries and you mm. can look for how they work. So there's, there's a lot of great um, venom research centres in the world, some of which are here in Australia, mm. who do a lot of that sort of high throughput screening of being able to sort of segment out the the venom and be able to sort of purify it down, 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 down until they Mm. know which component is actually responsible for that biological activity. Yeah, yeah. Very cool, Gracie. Any more? Good. Um, I think uh, one, do we, we actually do have all those venomous snakes or is that just something that we tell tourists? No, we do have a high number of Because I can never work that out. Snakes, spiders, platypi, they're also toxic, jellyfish, cone shell, yeah. Box jellyfish, yeah, jellyfish. We do have a lot of venom. I think the biological world of toxins is kind of well represented in our biology here in Australia. It's the epicenter. Yeah, pretty much everything is trying to. Nasty stuff. Everything in Australia is trying to kill As Crystal was saying, there actually is some legitimately world-class research in Australia for these kind of things, you know, for people are investigating the compounds in venomous animals, because, including snakes. Yeah, so, because they're yeah, such rich yeah, biological yeah. mixtures. We still don't know yeah. everything that's in them. One of the things that I found fascinating, I read a few years ago, I'm not sure if you saw this in your, your research on this, Gracie, but there was a particular, I think it was a type of fish, a very deep sea dwelling fish that had a, a type of anesthetic that it would, um, it's, it's sort of um, would inject into its prey. <laughs> And it was so fast that we were interested in it because it was much faster working mm. than anything that yeah. we had. And so, you know, it would just sort of zap these mm. other fish, much larger fish with, um, in fact, I think it might have been a snail mm. of some type. Anyway, it had this um, incredibly fast acting yeah. anesthetic compound that we were like, holy crap, how did it generate that? You know, but of course, when something's swimming by at high speed, you want to slow it down before, if you're yeah. a snail. You need yeah. to slow it down pretty <laughs> yeah. quick, otherwise it'd take you months exactly. to catch up. Turns yeah. out evolution is one of the best inventors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that old chestnut. <laughs> and Gracie, you uh, you also uh, we we didn't get to your news before, but you were looking at some weird, weird, freaky robot that's doing artwork or something this week, yeah. Yes. So um, basically the question was centered around what if a humanistic artificial intelligence robot made and sold its own artwork? (laughs) And so that's exactly what's happening in London. So this robot was made in 2019 and it's named the ADA. So AI-DA, ADA robot. Um, And her artwork has sold for over a million dollars. 
Um, she's basically done exhibits to kind of stir this debate on intellectual property rights. So who owns the artwork? Is it Ada, the robot that owns the artwork, or is it the creator of the robot? Um, and then also kind of just to stir this debate about humanistic robots in general. Um, Hmm. Yeah, and basically she's doing a, a self-portrait exhibit this year in London starting in May. And so I feel like we've probably all probably heard the, the term uncanny valley to yeah. kind of describe this creepiness of how a robot looks, right? Similar to human, but not quite human enough to pass for human. Um, and it kind of makes me wonder at what point will robotics progress to the point where that term no longer applies so much to the way the robot looks, but the way that it acts. Yeah, so for instance, right. something like making art. Yeah. It's freaky yeah. stuff. It just disturbs me. I, I wish I could queue up the Terminator music right now, but I don't have it ready. <laughs> um, but that that is, it's just freaky stuff. And the fact that people are buying this stuff for a million dollars, what what is going on? It's, um yeah, wow. Well, Gracie, look, it's been great to talk to you and very, very pleased uh, that we managed to get you online uh, today as well, given the difficulties with, um, you know, all the snow and the wind and the no power and the everything falling apart and you having to use a lightsaber to keep warm, you know, <laughs> aka Han Solo style over the last week. So it was good to get you online given all those, um, those difficulties. Hope things keep improving there in Texas and uh, we will talk to you again in a few weeks' time. Yes, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. How. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. On the line with us now is Barbara Winecki. She is from the Australian Antarctic Division. Good morning, Barbara. How are you going? Morning, Shane. Doing well, and how are you? I'm great. Look, it's fantastic to talk to yet another person over this month uh, from the Australian Antarctic Division. We're doing a bit of a run, as you probably know, of people, and we started off with your imperial leader to, to kick things off, which was great. But um, you've been working over the years on some really fascinating things, and uh, for those uh, few people who've been been to a place where you can see them, and you know, there's a few places around the world where you can, but you've been working in particular on emperor penguins and um, using satellites to essentially track them. Give us a bit of an idea of what you've been doing in the past in that space. Sure, Shane. I mean, it was uh, truly extraordinary work. Um, I had the great opportunity to winter at Mawson in 94, and uh, the task then was to study the foraging ecology of emperor penguins, particularly throughout winter. For many years, we knew already that the females, once they laid their egg, would hand it over to their partner and then disappear. Mm. But the big question always was, where do they go? So we, um, my assistant Kieran and myself had the great, um, the great uh, opportunity to meet these birds in person um, and deploy some satellite trackers on them as well as dive recorders. So we managed to find out not only where they went, but also what they did while they were out there. Yeah, T tell us about that, because I can imagine for some of these birds, it was just anywhere but looking after these eggs in the freezing cold <laughs> wind, right? So where, where did they head off? Well, th that was really fascinating. I mean, Oster, the colony where we worked, is um, on the fast ice along the Mawson coast. So the fast ice is uh, an ongoing area of ice that is attached to the land, and north of it is the pack ice, where wind and wave actions keep it fairly dynamic. So the girls had to travel across about 50 or 60 kilometers of this fast ice to start um, getting anywhere near potential foraging areas. Mm. And um, the interesting thing was that 
while these girls traveled over the about 60, 65 days that they were away, round about two and a half to 3,000 kilometers. I mean, they were really traveling long distances, but they were swimming and traveling basically in an east-west direction and pretty much stayed in the, in the backyard of their colony. That means that they were very rarely more than about 120 to 150 kilometers measured in a straight line away from the colony. Mm. So huge, huge travels, but in a very confined area. Yeah, one of the things I find curious is I, I always have this image of um, penguins being ridiculously fast in water, but sadly somewhat slow when they're out of water. I mean, when you talk about distances of 120 kilometers, how much of that is across the ice and how much of it is, you know, in, in, a, in a water environment? Well, they had, to, they had to cross about 60 kilometers of fast ice and wow. that is certainly not an easy task. I mean, it, it took them about a week, which means that mm. they were still steaming. Um, I guess one of the advantages was that we had, well, not so much for, for us little humans, but certainly for the penguins, we had a, a year with an awful lot of snowfall. And where there is snow, the birds just plonk on their belly and start mm. to toboggan. And that is just a most magnificent and wonderful means to, uh, to commute. Mm. Now, you've, um, you've built on this now, I suppose, all this knowledge of um, the way in which penguins move around and so forth. And now you're looking at the dynamics of these colonies with regards to environmental shifts. This sounds like a much more longer-term project. Tell us about that. It is. We, we have started, we being um, a number of international colleagues and myself, we have started to use satellite imagery um, to, to follow what is actually happening at assorted colonies. I mean, the interesting thing with the satellite imagery is that um, we, first of all, managed to increase the number of colonies that we now know about quite dramatically. When, when we did the satellite tracking, we knew of about maybe 40 colonies, and we are now up to about 60. So using, mm. utilizing satellite technology has already um, increased our knowledge massively. The good thing is also that by looking at the penguin colonies from space, um, you can really see how their environment is changing. The trouble is that it seems to be really quite colony specific. I mean, the dynamics around the Antarctic coast are complicated. There, um, there are differences in the amount of, um, of ice that forms, which is part in partly, partly due to the catabatic winds, um, there are pollinias that are areas where warm water, warm that's relative speaking, mm. warm water comes to the surface and, and prevents the ice from freezing. They, um, it depends on where the penguins are in relation to icebergs or ice shelves. So a lot of factors influence what, what is going on there. But we have certainly seen a couple of absolutely dramatic changes just in the, in the recent years. One of them was that um, our British colleagues had been monitoring a, um, the second largest emperor penguin colony at Cape Helly, or at Helly Bay, rather. And, you know, large, we talk about 22,000 breeding pairs, uh, as I said, mm. the second largest colony that we, that we have. And three years in a row, they had suffered a complete breeding failure because the sea ice actually broke out before the chicks were ready to fledge and go to sea. Wow. And eventually, yep. the birds just obviously thought, well, this ain't going to happen here anymore, and literally packed up their bags and, and moved west to a, to a different colony. But that, of course, interrupted their breeding effort yet again, probably for a fourth and maybe for a fifth year. Mm. So that's, that's bad news. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so you, I think you partly answered my question, but I, I guess I was interested in, yeah, the impacts of climate change on these penguins. And I guess particularly, as you were talking about before, their foraging patterns. So does the, does the changing climate also impact how easy or hard it is to get to their feeding grounds, um, both in terms of getting to them, but also, I guess, what food is even there now, um, depending if that's changing because of the increasing temperatures and so. So, if you, yeah, be interested to know what you know about that as well. Yes, I mean, the inter- that is a good question. The, the interesting or the, the good thing about emperor penguins is that they are not exactly specialist feeders. They're, they're little cousins, the king penguins, um, heavily rely on the presence of mctophids, the little mm. lantern tree. But emperors have a vastly varied diet. So that in itself is a good thing because when you feed opportunistically, you basically just catch whatever is available. Yeah. And uh, there are definitely changes uh, happening. I mean, we've got a very talented young colleague who is doing a lot of genetic work on um, on the scats. Mm. And yes, Shane nods. She, she was on your show as well. It's fantastic. Yep. And Jules found out that um, penguins and albatrosses for that matter are now, well, now they seem to be ingesting an awful lot more selp than we ever thought. Yeah. So these squishy little uh, jellyfish like uh, like creatures you wouldn't think that there is a great deal of nutrition in there but when when krill and fish aren't there and there's only cell maybe that's what you have to do mm. it's um it's interesting to me when you talk about the satellite imagery as opposed to tagging what what sort of resolution are you you're talking about there can you see individual penguins and track them or is it sort of large masses that you sort of say oh that's about x number of penguins how sophisticated is that imagery well that always depends on how much money you have in your pockets Mm, yeah i bet (laughs) there is very high very high resolution imagery available but of course you pay for it so we tend to use the uh, the imagery that is available for a lesser cost or even free and uh, it's it is tricky to use it to estimate population size because emperors are extraordinarily dynamic. They don't have fixed breeding places. And um, we, we know, of course, that when, it's, when they are experiencing raging storms, they come together and huddle. That means thousands of birds push into a, basically in a few um, hundred square meters, while if the, if the weather conditions are somewhat milder, they just spread out and cover mm. a huge area. And of course, throughout these entire processes, they happily continue to digest and defecate. And it really is the um, the fecal stains on the ice that we are looking at. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask mm. you whether there's any thermal aspects to the imaging at all, or whether it's all it's all in the visible spectrum. I'm assuming it's the latter. It is. Sadly, it would be fantastic to um, uh, to get the the thermal images. Um, possibly, we we probably still wouldn't be able to to see individuals. But the interesting thing is also, I mean, throughout winter, uh, the visible image is not particularly useful. We're going to infrared there. Mm. But that, of course, is very, very coarse and um, makes it virtually impossible to see anything other than the large-scale changes in ice. Yeah. So um, just before we we go, uh, Barbara, I think um, this presumably is a long-term project of monitoring in addition to other things, but something that will have to go on for quite a period. Is there a, is there a sort of time frame around that or is it just indefinite at this point? It sounds like something we should continue to do for quite a protracted time. Well, it definitely is something that, that needs to continue. We are working within the, uh, the framework of... Um, uh, research applications. So, 
currently we've got a project that is um, scheduled to last 10 years, mm -hmm. which is, you know, about half a lifetime of an emperor penguin. So yeah. just need to keep filling in the paperwork and continue to extend this work. Yeah, well, good luck. I hope it goes on for many, many decades. I think it's something that obviously gives us a lot of information. It's very important. And especially with the dynamics of the world at the moment, things are going to be changing very quickly. So having having sort of granularity to that data from year to year is going to be really important. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with this ongoing study. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Folks, uh, that was Barbara Benecki from uh, the Australian Antarctic Division. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 Triple R. We have on the line now our final guest for today, uh, Dr. Simon Corey. He's a senior lecturer in the Chemical Engineering Department in the ARC Centre for Bioscience at the uh, Monash University. Good morning, Simon. How are you going? Good morning, Shay. Good morning, Crystal and Ewan. It's good, well, thanks. it's good to talk to you. Now, um, you're working on some really interesting stuff with regards to, I suppose we, we talk about just um, some of the deteriorations we see in the heart, um, some of the problems that we get with regards to stroke and sepsis, all of these things going on in the body, sometimes all at the same time, sometimes not. Can you give us a bit of an idea what the, the problems are there? We've had some guests on recently talking about sepsis and some of the issues around that and some of the treatments, but give us a bit of a feel for, for what you've sort of been doing in that space. So, um, so my group mainly focuses on biosensors, developing diagnostic tests and biosensors. And the key thing here is that the, the, one of the things that links those conditions together that you just mentioned is that they're characterised by rapid deterioration in a, in a person. Yep. So, you know, you can very quickly deteriorate and it can become life-threatening very quickly. And so one of the things that underpins that is that these, these disease processes are time-dependent. Uh, they happen over short time periods but there's big changes in those sort of biological processes. So what we're trying to do is develop sensors that we can use in real time in biological environments, whether that be in a cell culture, whether it be in, in a person or an animal, um, uh, you know, and, and to try and really elucidate what's going on by measuring these, these, these events in real time and space. So uh, what, what's the sort of current situation with regards to those measurements? Because obviously if someone turns up in a... In a, even just if paramedics attend your home or whatever, they start doing ECGs and so forth. I mean, obviously, there's a difference with stroke where you're needing to do CT scans to determine what's going on and so forth. And sepsis then is a different game again. Um, what, what's the sort of time differences there in terms of what is normally being done at the moment? So, I mean, the, the, obviously, the, you know, uh, health professionals, you know, respond, you know, as fast as they possibly can these situations and so what 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 often happens is that especially for these complex uh, diseases in terms of the diagnostics required to get through and work out what's happening with a person there's a huge reliance on centralized laboratories mm -hmm. so there's a lot of the tests whether it be you know trying to grow a bug to determine if sepsis is occurring or uh, you know or whether it be detecting cardiac troponin uh, proteins in the context of of, um, of acute MI and you know all those sorts of things. Um, a lot of it happens in the centralized labs. Now, there's nothing nothing wrong with that. Our centralized labs are sort of critical, and we've seen you know they've been critical in the response to COVID, etc. But the only problem is that um, those those labs obviously aren't available at the where the person actually is. So you can't have a centralized lab in an ambulance. You know, you can't have it in the home or workplace. 
um, or the GP clinic. And so there's a there's a problem with turnaround time a lot of the time too. So it's it's and sometimes it's a logistical issue. You get a sample, it goes off to the lab, the result comes back. If you need that information within minutes to make a determination on whether someone needs treatment X, treatment Y, then that's a case where you know, new biosensors and new diagnostics that can be employed, you know, in the back of the ambulance, at someone's home, at the bedside is really important. Yeah. And I think we have seen that um, during COVID, the, the, you know, increased use of telehealth and people being reluctant to actually travel to healthcare centres to seek care. Um, how is that playing into your sort of research objectives? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we got involved a little bit with developing um, some, some serology tests early on in the pandemic. And I think that there's probably now across the community more of an understanding of um, the important role that diagnostics plays in being able to make decisions, whether it be a person making decisions about their own treatment, whether it be a doctor or nurse or one other healthcare professional helping them make decisions about what they need, or whether it's about, you know, governments being able to decide, well, who needs to be isolated or quarantined uh, right now. And I think, you know, the, the diagnostics that we have, namely the, the swab-based tests, which are PCR tests, and the antibody-based serology tests, um, these, are, these are fantastic, um, but they're still all laboratory-based. And I think that's, that's also been an issue. In Australia, it's not been so bad because, you know, the, the, the amount of testing that we've needed is commensurate with what we can do. But in other countries, you know, the, the lab systems have been overwhelmed and you could wait weeks to get a test result. So mm. I think there's more of an understanding around funding and um, around the community that developing new tests that people could do on the spot or, you know, possibly have, you know, screening systems in place in public transport or workplaces. These are sort of the, the discussions that might come out of this. Mm. So, Simon, it's interesting to me when we talk about, you know, this because it, it takes away some of the idea of medicine only being done in, or these sorts of aspects of medicine only being done in our hospitals. And I think a, a good example of that is the stroke ambulance program, where clearly we're taking the necessary testing out to the individual so that that 20 minute time window that's so crucial with regards to stroke treatment um, can be met. What, what sort of, I mean, with these chips at the moment you're working on, I mean, how far through have you gotten? And, you know, how much can you test at this point on one of these chips and how quickly can you get those results? I, I suppose they're instantaneous in a sense, but yeah. Yeah, so so with the with some of the... We've been mainly focusing on engineering the, the, the critical sort of proteins and antibodies that can be used to bind to a certain protein like troponin and at the same time report a signal. Mm -hmm. uh, so that being able to do that in one step rather than doing it in a multi-step process that we do in a lab enables you to do that, that sort of work very quickly. So we're now at the point where we're, where we're fitting into devices and I think that, you know, it's what, what we're trying to not fall into the trap of is, is, is working with the devices that, um, that have always been used because some of, the, some of the diagnostic devices like lateral flow strips, the type of pregnancy type uh, uh, test strips that people might be familiar with, that technology has been around since the 80s. And there's some things that they're really good for, but there's other things that they're not so good for. So we're trying to sort of fit, fit what we've developed into the context of what other people have got for these chips. So the, the process is, I mean, if you mix blood-containing troponin with these, with these engineered antibodies that we've recently developed, you'll, you'll immediately 
immediately start seeing results. You'll immediately start seeing the, the binding effect and you'll start seeing fluorescence change in that antibody. Um, the challenge then is to, is to take that out of the experimental environment of our lab and put it into one of these devices. Um, but with removing the washing steps and the multiple sort of uh, steps of an immunoassay that would be normally done in a lab, you know, it should be able to be done very quickly. Um, so that's where we're up to. Yeah. Look, Simon, it's, it's really fascinating work. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of various talks about various things on the chip for quite a while now. And it's good to see some of them coming coming through to a point where hopefully they'll be implementable in, in the very near future. Because, you know, as we say, this idea of... Um, and I think it was uh, the CEO of the new of Western Health and their new project around building a new hospital out at Western Health said that they wanted a hospital without borders, which I think is an interesting concept where you you know connect your healthcare better to the community. And I think most of us know that much care in the community works a lot better than it does if you're stuck in a hospital ward, um, especially at the moment with COVID, where your support structures can't can't even be there. So taking all the testing and all the diagnostics, you know, out of those centralised locations also is is pretty important so this stuff is going to have a lot of good applications thanks so much for talking to us today and, and good luck with that hopefully that uh will come to pass very quickly yes thanks shane thanks crystal thanks you good to talk to you thank you folks that was uh, dr simon corey from uh, monash university talking about some very interesting stuff around uh, new ways of testing We've got a few minutes to go. I didn't want to leave the show without just hanging out with you two for a little while and see what you've been doing. I've, I've been I've been here by myself for so long. I've been freaking out. But uh, Dr. Ewan, I mean, you you you've still been presumably lecturing online for the last year. How's that? How's uh, that yeah, going? Yeah, last year I was doing the online mm-hmm. teaching thing, and that's about to start again. Um, that's what yep. we're doing at Deakin, at least for the first half of the year. Um, so yeah, look, that was challenging. I certainly pre- uh, prefer to see um, people face to face, but I guess that's a reality that we're in at the moment. So, yeah. um, but you know, there's been advantages for that too. It's made um, education accessible to people that may not otherwise be able to get to campus, right? So there's yeah. a whole range of personal circumstances that mean people can't get to campuses. So there's, there's been pros and cons. So have, have you gone to a larger number of conferences internationally than you would have normally done as a result of uh, online attendance? No, you... a, yeah, good question. No, I haven't. I have been to a couple that I probably wouldn't have gone to, mm-hmm. um, even local conferences, because I actually have tried to reduce the number of conferences I go to over the previous few years because I don't think it's actually actually yep. justifiable, as, especially yeah. as an environmental yeah, scientist. Yeah, yeah. So, um, And again, I think it's one of the good things about that is it has also made conferences more inclusive because they can be really expensive, particularly for students. So yep. you're getting, I would think, a more diverse array of people attending these conferences, which is a good thing. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's been another benefit, I think. Yeah, it's funny. I should apologise. I, I put a tweet out about two years ago calling for people, for scientists yeah. to reduce their conference travel. Mm. I, I didn't mean for this to happen. That wasn't. This was not my intention. It was sort of like, you know, if you're going four times, maybe go two. Just yeah, cut it back because absolutely. the environmental impact of, of travel is, is very, very high. Yep. Um, I, I didn't mean for it to go to zero. Um, not not so quickly, but it, but it did. So, yeah. What about you, Crystal? How's your also the working oh, well, life been going? So, I've had a few days back in the office this year, um, which has been, I've actually really enjoyed. I think that it's, um, whilst it's been um, challenging working from home um, and there are some benefits, you know, getting to do mm. yoga during a boring lecture, um, you know, for example, is, is one kind of, you can turn your camera off and just pop your head on the desk if you need to have a sleep during a boring meeting. But um, but no, I think being back in the office and being able to see your colleagues and yep. actually just be able to kind of reach out and say, can I just get your, your thoughts on this? Or can I just pull you in for five minutes and, and just be able to bounce ideas off people? There's nothing like that face-to-face kind of interaction. Yeah. But I do think it has made the world a smaller place in some yeah. ways because we're, mm. and I've found that we're more likely to reach 
reach out to our global experts and global colleagues and be able to have more people are more kind of open and willing to talk to mm, yep. us down here in Australia because we don't seem so far away anymore. So yep. I think it's actually been great for actually bringing together more global collaborative networks. And for me, that's been the big theme of the pandemic actually has been the incredible collaboration um, that we've seen come about to address health problems, but also non-health problems. So yep. I think that there's just been a huge amount of willingness for people to work together. And for me, that's been one of the great benefits is actually seeing people willing to move outside their comfort zones, seeing people and organisations who wouldn't normally come together actually starting to address some big challenges. So I think it tells us when we see the need, we can make a difference and we can make big changes that are needed to address big problems. So apart from the pandemic, what are the other Mm. challenges in the world that we might (laughs) need to bring people together around? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's, it's fascinating because one of the things um, I think has also happened here is there's been more of a focus on how people communicate. Now, I've been Mm. teaching communication courses for almost 30 years Mm. and workshops with, you know, a long time. And one of the things I'm I'm now able to say, and everyone kind of hears you, is when I talk about how much information you get from an audience when they're in front of you. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden in Zoom, it's just shoulders up. Yeah. And you've got like 20% of that information. And much of it is subconscious. But, you know, you're detecting it and you, you know that you're giving a crap lecture mm-hmm. or you know you're giving a great lecture and you, you pick up on that and it gives you or takes away energy from you. Yeah. And all of a sudden now we're having to work that much harder when we're doing things like, you know, online calls and so forth because we only see a portion yeah. of the individual. And so for me teaching that stuff, it's really easy now to say, you know, that stuff I was talking about where you can, you can see how hard it is now when you're doing Zoom or, or Skype or whatever compared to what you did in the past, which is a big difference. But I think, Crystal, your point about, you know, gee, we can actually come together and the whole world hasn't. I think we should point to that. You know, there's been parts that have really screwed this up, but there's been times when, you know, political leaders of different sides of politics all over the place have actually managed to work collectively to resolve this problem. And, you know, there are, you know, a nuance. Look at him. He's just, he's, He's ready to jump out of his seat with environmental <laughs> <laughs> stuff around the time. I was going to say, luckily uh, this show is about to yeah, finish. Yeah, but I'm just uh, wind up. <laughs> but you know, we could. You know, we did it with the ozone layer. CFCs, we've done it. Yeah. We've done it with CFCs. We've yep. we've done it now to some degree with the pandemic around the world. And you know, the other big, the other really big killer is right on our doorstep and has been for a while. So we could do it with climate as well. Absolutely, a nice thing. But uh, we don't have another three hours. Uh, we're going to hand <laughs> over to the team from Eat It. Unfortunately, we would love to talk more about this, and we will, of course. And we we're will. Doing Doing a lot on that, but um, for the moment, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Yun, great to see you. Great to be back. Good to have you in the studio. And you too, Dr. Crystal, fantastic to see you. Always fun chatting science with you, Dr. Shane. A big thank you to Gracie from Texas and for our guests for today who came online again. Hopefully we'll have guests back in the studio soon, but still uh, we're managing to get people from all over the place these days, which is kind of kind of fun. And thanks to Liv who tweets. Oh yeah, Liv's been tweeting. She was desperate to come into the studio today, but that we have breached our conditions, so we said no. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We're going to hand over now to the great team from Eat It. Have a fantastic Sunday and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.